<laughs> All right, page 20. <clears throat> what, what jumped out at you from, you know, anywhere from, let's just take the three texts for now, and if there's nothing, then we can move on. But anything jump out at you in these three texts before we go to the four terms? On 24 with the Acts uh, 2, 1 to 4. Yeah. The 120 followers of Jesus. I read that text and I didn't get that number at all. I mean, how did he derive at that? I thought this was where, you know, the 12 apostles, they spoke in tongues and the flames, mm-hmm. but 120? Well, you remember, I mean, there are, the question is, um, how did he come up with 120? Because in that specific te- text that he quotes, he doesn't, there is no reference to 120. Remember, but there are a number of disciples. You know, he sends out the 70, he sends out the 72 in Luke's gospel. What, you know, whether you think it's 70 or 72, we don't know. But he sends out a great number there. You have the disciples, you have 11, plus then Matthias comes in as the 12. You've got a number of people that are following along that this then all happens to. So it's not just the apostles themselves, but it's a greater number than that. Okay? That's a good question because he does just kind of say it and doesn't tell you where he gets. It would be nice for a footnote there. Here's where I got the numbers from. When does he when does he call the seventy in Luke's gospel? I, mean, I know it's different, but oh, 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 yeah. but doesn't he call the seventy late in Luke's gospel? Now, when the John six account occurs in relation to that, the point is he's there are people following all the way, and when he gets here to Pentecost, it's the outpouring of the Spirit then upon those followers of Jesus. So, anything else though? Kind of yeah, go ahead. Yeah. What page are you on? Are you uh, twenty-two? Okay. It, it says that the word "create" occurs mm-hmm. more times in Isaiah than any other place in the Bible, and you know, I just never really thought about the creating and a new life in Babylon. I mean, it was not something that I remember from that study. Not that it wasn't a few years ago. Right. 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 Exactly. How the, there's more account or more occurrences of create outside of Genesis. I mean, you think, where do you hear create? Everyone thinks Genesis 1. Um, but it actually occurs quite a bit. And what was fascinating was how he says on that same page, um, you know, the second full paragraph that begins, but there is more to this. About halfway down, well, a third of the way down, only God creates. And the most frequent use of the verb is not in the story of the beginning of heaven and earth, but in a prophetic slash pastoral ministry that took place among the exiled people of God in Babylon in the 6th century B.C. And, that continu- and then he also made a comment. I, I, didn't, I don't know if I marked it, but he said God creates, and this is a great theological thing that if you can kind of grasp the whole time, God creates and he never stops creating. It's not like Genesis 1 happened and God stopped creating. Every absolution is a creation. Every Eucharist is a creation. Every baptism is a creation. Because you're taking an old creation and making it new. So to say, to, for him to locate the, the act of creation in the prophetic slash pastoral ministry is right on. And it happens in the scriptures that way, and it happens then even to this day. If Nelson was down here, he, he could talk for an hour about the creation, the word going to creation, and the word never, stop, never stops creating. Right? That's what happens. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 
I read it this morning. So good. Okay. <laughs> yes. Every time, what is, the question is, what does the gospel do, right? The gospel makes things new. One of the greatest scenes in the Passion of the Christ, and, you know, I know, I know this is foreign to many of you, but I am, I'm not a real emotional person, so just ask my wife. But in the Passion, in the Passion of the Christ, one of the scenes that just, I mean, it was like a full-body response to this, this scene. I couldn't get over how I reacted to it, was when Jesus meets his mother on the, you know, the way of sorrows, and there are a couple things going on, but what happens is he meets his mother, and he actually cradles his mom and says, behold, I'm making all things new. That's it. And the other, the other fascinating part is not only does he say that, but it's a reverse Theotokos. If you know what Theotokos is, the God bear. All the icons of Mary. Mary holds Jesus, and here Jesus holds his mother. It's a reverse, which is what happens then now that Jesus has died and has risen. You, the great icons of Mary's death actually show, show Jesus cradling the Blessed Virgin Mary. It's reversed now. He cradles the church. But that line, behold, I make all things new, that's what it's all about. And he continues to do that. Once he speaks, he never stops speaking. Yeah, Holly. Uh, yeah. Right. And it's all very tangible, but he doesn't ever leave us kind of swinging our heads like, did that just happen? Right. Exactly. Which, which, yeah, exactly. Which means these three events are not just spiritual events, but the way you said tangible, what you're really saying is they're sacramental events. You know, these are sacramental. I mean, this is, I could get on my high horse for four hours about. You know, why preaching is utterly sacramental because it delivers a word that's actually breathed. It takes vocal cords to deliver it. It's all about the word being spoken. If it's not spoken, it's not a word. And if it's not a word, it doesn't make things new. So you're right, the tangibleness, the concreteness, is really the sacramentalness of all these events and of everything that happens in the church. When your husband stands up and starts to preach, that's a sacramental event. It actually comes into your ear just like it does with Mary and changes the things inside of you. That's fascinating. I just. Can I ask you yeah, you can. Does that, does that mean. Well, I'm, I'm pushing that to, to the extreme, but that you could read your Bible all day long. Right. Unless you read it out loud. I should turn the mic off for this section, actually. Uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> off the record, you're not going to call the synodical headquarters on me. Off the record, I would never say it's wrong to read your Bible, but the best way is to have it read to you or to hear it. So even Luther, for instance, Luther takes his Bible, there's an account of this, takes his Bible in the morning and as he's reading his lessons, he doesn't sit at his desk and read, he paces back and forth. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and reads it out loud because it's all about the hearing. That's why when Samuel asks for a, for a, for a heart, he says, give me a hearing heart. That's what the Hebrew says. So it's all about hearing the word spoken. What would be best is in the morning when you do your devotions, read the text out loud. In fact, read the prayers out loud. Read the versicles out loud. Read all that out loud because it has to get into your ear. Yeah.
Right. Right. And w- and one of the great tragedies, and I, I wouldn't say it's a tragedy, one of the great sadnesses in the church is people are so hooked on the bulletin on Sunday, specifically when it comes to the readings. Now, when I said this to the Joy Group, save Carol, that, you know, there was, a, there was a big reaction to this because that's just what we've done. That's just, you go to any church and the readings are usually printed, right? But it would be so much more, um, wouldn't be more sacramental. It would be more in the fullness of what God intended for a word to be if we didn't have the printed text, if you just stood there and heard it or sat there and heard it. Yeah. That's right. No, that's right. And, and you know what? Yeah. And there's a reaction to everything. I mean, people say, people say, well, I can't hear it very well. I mean, I get all that. Well, no, I can hear it, but I concentrate better if I actually visually. Right. If I hear it and. I'm the same way, actually. I completely understand. Okay. Yeah. I almost need it. Like, oh, guys, they started. I don't have enough. That's right. Holly, what do you have? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the nature of the scriptures to be spoken. Yeah. Someone else had a hand up. I was going to say that I'm just wait. I used to do this. Just wait for somebody to misread. Yes. And so I don't look. Yeah. Yeah. Because we make, I mean, there are a lot of screw-ups. There really are when you think about it, like a missed word or you reverse words or, you know, one time Pastor Bruzik said, um, do you remember this at Lent? No, I am going to rat on him because it was too funny. It was during Lent and Vicar Crane, who was the champion of Lutheran orthodoxy in the sense that, like, he was. I mean, it was live or die Lutheranism. And you know what? There's something very admirable about that. But his, the, Vicar Crane was preaching, and you know the chief, one of the chief doctrines of Lutheranism is you're saved by grace through faith, not by works. And Pastor Ruzik read this text during the Lenten service and said, you are not saved by grace through faith, not of works. And he goes back down and he said, I think I just reversed all of Lutheran theology in that one text. <laughs> so you're right. Now, many people didn't catch it, but had they been following along, they would have said, you know, string him up, he's a heretic. But it was just... Quite ironic that Vicar Crane was the preacher that night. <laughs> but you see how we yes. cling on to everyone. Yes, that's right. Well, we, men I remember speak. being trained. You're supposed to check what you're hearing. Yeah, right. So I always, I'd rather listen, mm-hmm. but I'm always reading along going, trying to, I don't know, I just remember being told you have to check what you right. listen to. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas following along, it's more like 
my kids are always like, read me the Bible, read me the Bible. And my older guys, I'm like, I don't have time. You read it yourself tonight. But I, I've got to think about that now because mm-hmm. I'm, wonder, I'm wondering um, if it, kids grow up to love stuff being read anyway. But when it comes to the Bible, that's right. There are. <laughs> That's right. And, I, and I, we always tell them we can top anything you'll see on TV or at the movies in the Bible. You read Song of Solomon. You know, you'd be 13 to read that when you were a Jewish boy. I'm serious. Yeah. You had to be of age to read that. You, you read that and you know why instantly. That's right. Maybe if for a Jewish boy it was different, but... What else? What else jumped? This is, this is great stuff. Did you know? Let me just say one thing to see if this maybe gets you going a bit. Um, I don't know if, hold on, I wrote it down here. This is the poor man's way of marking pages. You just rip up post-it notes. Um, do they? Really? I'll have to look into that. Wow. Christmas present. You shouldn't have told me. That's right. Look at page 22. Look at page 22. First full paragraph. This is, I have never thought about this, and I don't know if Bruzik mentioned it. Did he mention it? About creating in the... This was, and then, his, then this breath of God, no longer just an inarticulate blowing, is used to make words. This is Holly's point. The same breath or spirit that produces wind now makes language. We first see the effects of God's breath on the water, then we hear the articulation of God's breath in the word. Words. God said, now here it is, eight times in the narrative, God speaks. I'd never known that. Eight times in the narrative of creation, God speaks. The eight sentences account for everything that is. The scope is comprehensive. Create accounts for everything that is in heaven and earth. And you know, what's the significance of that whole, Maddie? What's the significance of that whole paragraph? The number. The eight, eight, right? Everything is, everything is framed now by the eights. He creates on eights. You know, there are eight people saved in the ark. There are, uh, you know, he rises on the eighth day. Creation and redemption, the very first thing and the very last thing are framed by eights. He creates with eight and Jesus rises on the, on the eighth day, on Sunday. Everything is about the eights because eight is the number of new creation. Hence, behold, I make all things new. And it's a continual new creation. He's continually making his creation new. That is, I mean, that's like a Lenten series right there to preach on the eights, just in creation. Yeah? Is that because eight is also the time frame? Right. It's, it's new creation, and it's also unending. So we had a question the other night at, uh, at one of the home meetings. Can you baptize your kid during the week if it's the eighth day? And my response was, after Jesus' resurrection, every day is the eighth day. You live in, a, in what's called the eschatological, the unending eighth day. It never ends. It's always the day of Jesus' resurrection. Exactly. Exactly. So that is, I mean, this guy gets it, I'll tell you. That's it right there. Yeah. Where, where are you at? Page 26? 26, middle, middle oh, I see. I see. Yeah. So I, there was, um, he had said earlier, 
Christian life is Jesus. Mm-hmm. Or the life of spirituality. Mm-hmm. And and then he's here he's saying God's spirit is not marginal, it's, it is the main action. And I think it's just so often we we talk about Jesus or we talk about the spirit. Mm-hmm. But not really I mean and of course there's a trinity and they work together and all that mm-hmm. stuff. But Right, exactly. You mean the Trinity working in conjunction in every way, Jesus and the yeah, Spirit? And exa- well, and specifically the Spirit. Right. People want more Holy Spirit sounds That's what they, they do. I mean, from Joy Group. Whoa. I made an offhanded comment. I said the Spirit is the quiet person of the Trinity. And I'll tell you what, it was like I had said Luther was a heretic. I mean, they were all over me. And it's true in the Scriptures. He is very much, he really much, he really much, he really takes a back seat to the Father and to the Son. Well, the Son is the thing, right? To get to the Son, you have the Spirit, but to get to the Father, you need the Son. The Son is the thing because of the Incarnation. He actually takes on flesh. But you don't see the Spirit except for in Mark you know, Mark 1, in the dove, or in tongues of fire, but you don't ever see him really. Except that Christ is constantly Yes, he is. And yes. So what does that teach about your prayers? Anything? Well, that the, Go ahead. Well, it's just that, like, you know, and I don't know for sure, but the Holy Spirit translates. Yeah, right. Hearts, you know, because our ignorance to what to ask for is inappropriate. Yeah. We pray that the Holy Spirit would offer up the correct prayer. <laughs> That's, even your prayers need to be forgiven. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, think about that. Even your prayers, all your best efforts need to be forgiven, all your good works, and even your prayers need to be forgiven. Right? Um, boy, there's a, there's a lot here. Yeah. You can, well, let's ask, let's ask this. We can go as far ahead as you want. We can go all the way to the end of the chapter. But my, quest, my question is, is there anything else in particular about these three stories that you want to, that jumped out, that you want to discuss, anything like that? I don't mind moving ahead because we're, you know, we're down to about 30 minutes now. Um, so there's other great stuff. Other great stuff, yeah. Then go ahead. Yeah. Am I going to need some more coffee for this? Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's right. And, you know, sometimes I like to be, idealism to me is fun. Yeah. And so um, I like to imagine, because I, you know, I, I, I like to think of holiness in my mind being, um, being at church 
Mm-hmm. With clean clothes on, mm-hmm. showers, mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Wipes over. Yeah. <laughs> Fantasy. <laughs> I completely get that. Yeah. Yeah. Halos, things like that. Yeah. Right. It catches me off guard. Yes. Sometimes it's like I, I have like denial of Christ in my life because everything's so familiar toward me. Exactly. You know, so it, when, I, when it talks about the stuff that you guys were talking about, the, the spirit, I mean, I can understand it. Like on a, um, if, I, if I have quiet in the house and I can sit down and read, mm-hmm. I Home life, right. Exactly. So it's like there's a separation, but when he starts talking about that, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, and I think, well, I read the book, so I, it, there's like a, a disconnect that he's trying to mm-hmm. merge together, like it's all the same. Right. Well, here's the thing. Your, your struggle, uh, you're not alone in that, because I would guess most people in this room would say the exact same thing you do. And in fact, Peterson says that exact same. I mean, this is what he's saying. He's, he's validating your point. That people today can't see the miraculous because they get so caught up in the mundane, the daily stuff. Um, that's exactly what he's saying. That is exactly what he's saying. It's, it's, it's uh, yeah, I, I, I preached yesterday at Concordia, Chicago, Wilf River Forest, and the feast day was St. Francis of Assisi. And of course, the guy, when he calls, he says, do you want a feast day? And I said, well, yeah, I'd love to have one. He says, well, how about St. Francis? It's not really a Lutheran feast day, which I said, Great. <laughs> that would be wonderful. So I go out there and I preach, and, uh, what, and afterwards he was, he was fascinated by this point, and I, can't, I, did, I couldn't figure out why he, didn't, why he couldn't figure that out. I said something like, you know, St. Francis had a stigmata. He prayed for a stigmata. And I said, you know, he sought, it, it, the story goes, he prayed before a crucifix. The Lord spoke from the crucifix and said, Francis, reform my church. And the way he sought to reform the church was in poverty, lowliness, celibacy, Pick your, you know, monastic vow, right? And at one point, he finally prayed that the stigmata of Jesus would be his. My point was, we've all been stigmata, right? You've all been so caught up in the life of Christ. The way Francis reformed the church was, not by doing anything spectacular, but when people encountered him, they actually encountered Jesus. Both physically, they saw it, and he was baptized. 
And that's the same that was true for every college student there. When people actually encountered them, they encountered Jesus. And even in the mundane things, even in going to the cafeteria at Concordia River Forest, that's a miracle to encounter Jesus in the flesh in the person of that person sitting next to you, right? So what Peterson is saying here is, even in the very mundane things, the miraculous is occurring. You have Jesus in your very body. And so does the person next to you, even your daughter who won't clean up the litter box. That's an encounter with Christ. The problem is we're so skewed by the hell of the world and the struggle of daily life that we can't actually begin to see that. And I even wrote in the margins, I took it a a step further, and I said, even when you get into the church, you can't see them. Every Eucharist is a miracle that Jesus comes in his flesh and transforms that into body and blood. Every baptism is a miracle. That's a pagan, and now he's a Christian. Every absolution is a miracle. You don't deserve it, but you get it. So all this kind of stuff happens, and it's miraculous, and even people, I mean, you're not alone. I miss it sometimes. You're at the altar, and you speak the verba, and you say, this is great, and you don't realize how miraculous that actually is. So what he's saying is, look in those things. It's not just when someone's dead on the ER table and suddenly they sit up. That's not the only kind of miracle. It happens all the time. Right. Your dinner table is a little Eucharist. Right, it's like there's so many miracles exactly. happening, and we don't even see Exactly, it. right, right. And that's what he's pushing you towards, is to begin to see the Spirit at work in all these things so you can begin to sit down at dinner and say, it's been one heck of a day, and yet there's something miraculous going on. Let Carla go, and then we'll take you. Right. Exactly. It takes a great dose of Christian humility to be able to pray that prayer. I mean, to be able to actually recognize in yourself that it's not the Lord who's not showing me this. There are miracles all around. I go home at night and, you know, Emma's alive and I can give her a hug. That's a miracle. But you walk in and she's upset and you think, why the heck did I come home? You know what I mean? <laughs> I, could have st- I can work all night, but I go home to see Emma and Abby and, you know, Abby's frustrated and Emma's crying. Why did I come home? Well, that's a miracle. I mean, that's a miracle right there. And so to say that prayer takes a good dose of humility to say, yeah, Lord, it's not you that's screwing this up. It's me. Right? Carol, go ahead. One of the joys of learning of um, doing your own work, when you're taken out of your own comfort but with the grace of having eyes to see Mm-hmm. That's right. And I think most people that do like the children's Right. Yeah. And you see it. And at least for a while, when you come back, yeah. you see it in the ordinary 
Uh-huh. What always strikes me when I see it again is, are those Tide commercials from Katrina where they pull up the big trucks and do their laundry. I mean, that, that is so, in my mind, that is so Christological and so miraculous that these people have all these, you know, they can't even wash their own clothes anymore. And yet these people come out and actually just do it for them and give it back to them. And they don't steal their stuff and they don't whatever. I mean, that's, that's miraculous within the ordinary, you know? That's, I think you're exactly right. We should all do Katrina work maybe or do something like that. That's, well, yeah, I mean, well, I didn't want to go there, but that's right. I mean, it is. You see these people who are dirtied by, you know, we live in a fallen world where stuff happens like hurricanes, and yet they get their clothes clean. And to them, that's a miracle. To us, it's not. Well, <laughs> yeah, to us, it's not, unless I have to do the laundry. Then I realize how miraculous it actually is <laughs> that it gets done. <laughs> but Abby said this morning, my pants are shrunk. I said, oops, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, you know, I realize... I realize how miraculous that can be. <laughs> and I'll buy her a new pair of pants. The thing that I've found about um, living, trying to be constantly conscious of the miraculous is how horribly sinful I am. Mm-hmm. Because all of a sudden, um, <coughs> you know, like I characterized this past week as me yelling at Jesus and <coughs> all the time. And it's Meaning, I'm yelling at my kids mm-hmm. when I just should just chill out. It's kids are over, no need, and you know, and um, they're wearing something now that's in my face all the time. That's right. That is just shocking me over and over again when I'm just like ready to wring their necks or like smush them. Right. Um, I see they're wearing a crucifix. <laughs> <laughs> It's not. Because it would be nice to just kind of say, there's one place in life where Jesus isn't going to be here and I can just be me. <laughs> so, I don't know. And there is a place. Good, though. That's right. Well, there is. Well, yeah, as I said to the new members, everyone wants it your way. And finally, the Lord says, yeah, have it your way. I mean, hell is like a constant fast food place. Have it your way. And what's scary is when you actually have it your way, it's not too good. That's what hell is. You can just have whatever you want. You know, we, we always say, I just want it my way. And then you realize what your way is. That's scary. Think about it for just a minute, what your way would really be. It's hell. It really is. What else? How are the boys' choir? How was it? Is it just boys? What are they? Th- Title IX, right? What? They can't sing in the choir? Good. Good. The kids like it? The students? Good. That's great. What time? 7 o'clock or 7.30, I'm not sure. Here, yeah. That's great. Is that in the paper, too? Because we're working on it. Oh, no, I don't have it on the first page. 
8 p.m., all right. Hey, this is, if you look at page 37, I think this hits kind of on what Gigi just, what Gigi just said. If you look at page 37, but in our current culture, it's about halfway down. In our, this is where he's talking about soul and self, and he goes back and forth to what's the difference. But in our current culture, soul has given way to self as the term of choice to designate who and what we are. Self is the soul minus God. This is my point. Have it your way. Have it the way you want it as yourself. It's minus God. Self is what is left out of soul with all the transcendence and intimacy squeezed out. The self with little or no reference to God, transcendence, or others, intimacy. And I wrote in the margin, self is hell. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. As something that was 100% a gift to us, and any kind of spiritual development was completely done by the Holy Spirit, I don't think we have any issue with that. Because we're so entrenched in you know, the second sentence there. But to be spiritual is all about what we're doing and what we, the, the holy acts and what like the Bethel was describing. We were completely bought into this idea that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And that's why he, you know, he kind of nails Lutheranism at the bottom of that page when he talks about pietism. I mean, that's one of the great, I can't tell you how much that's affected, you know, contemporary Lutheranism. Contemporary, I mean, by like, not contemporary worship, today's Lutheranism. This whole, this whole idea of pietism in the 17th century where it is really about the outward spirituality and the, and the language, and they never kind of forsook the language of, inward maturity but it just wasn't the thing it was you gather at home don't worry about church you know i mean you could go on and on you have a whole class on pietism i think what was able to combat that well was lauren winner's book that we read last year you know the spiritual disciplines are all about the renewal of the self body mind soul everything and to to kind of get caught up in the spiritual disciplines then it's not about outward actions actually about how it transforms your soul as well so that was helpful at least last year i I thought, but what else? Yeah. Can we what? Sure. Uh oh. Hmm. Yeah, right. I I think and kind of the whole paragraph I get the sense that wait a minute. Are you saying that the early fathers made up the term? <laughs> the term? Yeah. They made, made up the term because it's not in the Bible. It says that earlier as well. Yeah. I think what he's referencing here is not the nature of a Trinitarian interaction, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, like we have in the scriptures, but actually the term Trinity and being able to verbalize or write down how they actually work together, given what the scriptures have said. 
I mean, these, what, he's, what he's citing here are um, the efforts of church councils that we accept. I mean, the efforts of all these church councils in the early church to say, no, here's who our God is and here's how he interacts with creation given what scripture has said in the past. What I found fasc- here's what I found more fascinating and more bothersome, actually, is that he cites Karl Barth to do this. Because Karl Barth, if you know anything about him, his one major problem was he didn't understand who Jesus was. I mean, he, the two natures in Christ, he got all bollocked up. I don't, I don't quite know how you can get the two natures of Jesus so bollocked up and yet still get the Trinity as right as what his citation kind of was here. But um, I wouldn't be too bothered by that. I think what he's saying is the term doesn't appear in the Bible, that the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. But what the fathers did is they said, here's all the stuff that Jesus has said. Here's how Jesus worked. Here's what he did. So here's, that, that gives us then a picture of what the Trinity does, right? And, and the idea that the interaction of the Trinity, or as he calls it, kind of the, the interactive dance of the Trinity, as a picture for the Christian life, I find fascinating. I think you could talk about the whole Christian life from the interaction of the Trinity. And you know what's great is next time you go to the supper, you should see, and if you haven't seen it yet, I don't know how you've missed it, but... If you, if you go up to the supper, you'll see, you know, here's the back altar, and here's Pastor Nelson's icon. You remember what the icon is an icon of? It's an icon of the Old Testament Trinity, right? So there's a table here, and there's an angel here, and an angel here, and an angel here, right? Old Testament Trinity from Genesis. The whole point of this icon, though, is this space is opened up for you. There are four spaces here, and there are only three people. The front spot is the only open spot. So when you come to the altar, you actually begin to participate in the life of the Trinity. And I, I've, written this on, I've written this on cards even. You know, we, we sent out these sympathy cards when people die. And one of the ones I got was this Old Testament Trinity. And the whole point is your, your loved one has been so caught up in the life of the Trinity that there's no doubt that they're having fun with them now. This fourth space was for them. And it's for you. So it doesn't, it doesn't destroy the nature of the Trinity to say you're the fourth person having some fun. I love how I use the language of play even. It's what it is. Going to the supper, that's just having fun. And then this fourth spot is opened up for you, so all you do your whole life is caught up in the interaction of the Trinity. How does the Father relate to the Son, to the Spirit? It's how you relate to other people in your life. Yeah. Okay, one last thing. Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, in here on, on page 44 where it talks about um, that uh, we, um, we, don't, we don't so much lack knowledge, we lack reverence. Fear of the Lord is not a technique for acquiring spiritual know-how, but a will not know it. And so it occurred to me that um, sometimes when um, we're trying to be more spiritual, Right. Sometimes the more you know, the less reverent you get. Right. Think about your kids and some of the things you don't want them to know. Yeah. Right? right. Um, but there is something 
reverent about a mystery, right? But that is, it is interesting. How d- I, well, I know. I mean, even, well, I mean, all over the place, even his reference to John 6, you know, was, was very affirmative of even things that Lutherans, frankly, have trouble over, you know, sacramentally. But it was, yeah, it is fascinating. But how he says that the Christian life or the spiritual life is, is matured or grows through sometimes a lack of knowing and a greater, you know, a greater response to reverence in the life of the Trinity. How does the Trinity interact? Reverentially. How do you interact the same way? Holly, and then I'm, I'm sure Carla's about to say we've got five minutes left. I got gotcha. you. All right, go ahead. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. In in a way, I mean, aside from helping your neighbor, mm-hmm. but a part of the Christian life is being still. Yeah, and that's that was the joy. That was the joy of Taze. That's right. That was the joy of Taze. Is that it actually gave you a chance in a concrete way to do that. You just sat there, and you were still, and you just you just listened. You just were. You know, Jill. That's right. That's very, that's, that's right on, actually. That's right on. That's right on. You can have a lot of fun outside the circle, but it's not good fun. But it's trying to find the fun inside the circle. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Hence the Taze music. Trying to have a little fun in the circle, right? All right. Well, we should probably, probably close up with prayer. We'll just close with prayer, and you can do whatever you've got to do. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, thank you.